The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. So we look this morning at Revelation. Uh, I confess to feeling somewhat inadequate as we, as we get further and further into Revelation 9. Uh, uh, I read a, a commentary this week that, says, uh, that, that said, uh, the interpretation of Revelation is designed to keep you humble. And I think that's uh, very true because it's often hard to understand um, but I think uh, I was talking to John Boyd this uh, this week. We had uh, the middle schoolers had a uh, progressive dinner, so they went around, and uh, his kids are in a couple of his kids are in middle school, and and we hosted uh, part of it. And uh, we were sitting there talking. He's like, um, uh, I ran across a quote from one of my teachers once that says, "Revelation is like a, a, a painting style, right? It's not it's not your classic. Okay, paint it." exactly as it is, you know, get all the details right. It's, it's, uh, it's more of an impressionist painting, right, style, where it, you're, you're leaving out details, but for the point of getting more than what's there across, um, and that more than you can see. And I think especially as we get into Revelation 9, that uh, part of the more that you can see is, is important here. Um, and so the, as we look at the text here, the goal, again, is not to give us all the details. The goal is to help us to evoke a response within us, right? I don't know if you've ever stared at a painting long enough to really uh, get a, have, have a response to that painting, so to speak, to, to, to catch the emotion that the author wanted you to catch. And, uh, and I think as we get into Revelation chapter 9, there's a certain emotion that's here, and one of the, the, the major emotions is an emotion of warning uh, of the fact that there are things coming in the history of the world that uh, should, should warn us to consider our path, consider the lives that we lead, and, and how we should how should we respond to who God is? So let's, let's get into Revelation chapter 9. Actually, we're going to start with the, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet this, mo- uh, this morning and kind of look at those in detail, which is chapter 9 as a whole. We're going to actually going to start uh, with the fifth trumpet, which is demonic locusts here, which again echoes um, the plague, or the plagues of Egypt, right, and the locusts that came. Uh, and that, again, showing there's this, this vision, right, the, uh, that John has had, that Jesus has given to him of you know, of first of all, warning the churches to, to consider how they're living their lives, to, to wanting to conquer, to, to live in light and live in faith in the midst of this world. And then he's talking about the future here, and, and he's given us a vision of God on his throne, the creator God who created the, the, the ends of the earth and who, who holds the universe together. He's on his throne, he's sovereign, and he is now working on his plan to restore all things to himself through his son, the Lamb, Right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who's that lion who conquered death on our behalf. And we say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And, and God the Father on the throne and the Son next to him as the Lamb have, have come. And the Lamb has now unsealed the seals, preparing the way for God's judgment on the earth to restore his people to himself and to judge those who reject him. And, and so you see... Here, as we look at the fifth and sixth trumpets, that there's a, this break here before it moved. The first four trumpets were one, two, three, four, and then there's a slight break here at the end of chapter eight where it says, Then I looked and I heard an angel, an eagle, crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets, 
that the angels are about to, the three angels are about to blow. And so there's this kind of this pause and a, an additional warning, if you will. And the eagle, you know, is a picture of again, it, you get the picture that it's it's you know, it's overhead, it's, it's within sight, you know, it's, you can see that picture of standing on the earth, looking up, seeing an eagle flying over. I think Tolkien, in his, uh, in his books, right, uh, Lord of the Rings, he uses the eagles here, right? The eagles are coming, the eagles are coming in the same kind of way as a, 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 dramatic, a dramatic shift in what's happening, a dramatic shift. Here it's a dramatic shift of continued warning, but increased warning. It says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the angels threw, threw three about to blow. And so there are three woes, and you see that if you read further into Revelation, it talks about the first woe and the second woe. It actually doesn't refer to the third woe, and I think the third woe overall is all of the seventh trumpet and the, and the seven bowls, as we'll see. It does reference woes later on, but not the third woe specifically in a sense. And so, but there's just this, this eagle symbolizing, in a sense, you know, power and sight uh, and uh, an oversight in that sense of, hey, look ahead, look up, there's something worse coming than the four trumpets that you've already experienced. And so chapter 9, verse 1 says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And again, a reminder here with these trumpets, it's always this picture of something coming from earth to he- from heaven to earth to, to symbolize God's judgment on the earth at the, at the prayers of the saints. And this star, however, is personalized, where the first four were not, and it's, which is probably a reference to a demon or an angel or the devil himself. And he's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Uh, that, 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 uh, I'll just read the text here and then we'll comment a little bit more on it. He, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then, this, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And so, so we have here uh, these locusts who are like scorpions, is, is this picture that's there, right? And uh, it starts off with this you know, bottomless pit, which is the, this is the first reference to the bottomless pit. And you're like, well, what is this place? Like, what is the bottomless pit? And it's referenced a couple other times in Revelation, as we'll see later on. Um, it, it probably is just a reference to, in a sense, the realm of death. Uh, Re- Re- Romans Chapter 10, verse 7 uses the same word, or who will descend into the abyss, and and then it interprets that to say that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So this is the realm of death, which in some ways you might refer to as hell, that is not the lake of fire hell, but just the realm of hell, and that that there's this, uh, this opening up of it, but not for the sense of putting people into it as much as letting something out of it. And first of all, you get this sense of smoke, and fire that come out of it, which is obviously similar to our pictures of hell, in our heads at least. And, uh, and then you see this smoke that in a sense turns into locusts, if you will. 
the turn, in a sense, they're scorpions. And it's this gradual unfolding. You think, okay, we have locusts coming out of the smoke, but then you realize they're not normal locusts because they don't eat grass, they don't eat plants, they actually wound people, they hurt people. And uh, you, get, you quickly get the idea that they're demonic. It's not, they're not, um, it's, it's, it's not something that's normal here. These aren't normal locusts, if you will. And they have the ability to torment people, especially it says that torment people who are, uh, do, do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So these, these aren't Christians that are being tormented. These are people who, aren't, who haven't trusted in God, who haven't trusted in Christ. Um, but instead, uh, they're, those who have rejected God are tormented by these demonic locusts. And, and so we have some details about them, but then it goes into more detail here. It says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breasts like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with, with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions, and their, their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them as angel of the bottomless pit. His name is, in Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So this is, this first woe here, this is a warning of this is what's going on. You say, well, what's going on here? And I've, uh, how you look at the painting matters here, okay? Some people think that, that uh, for instance, the painting is a picture of maybe of, of, of a broad swath of history, and we're looking for themes here. Some people are looking at, at it as if John kind of looked through the lens of history and saw actual historical events happening. And so they, they think, okay, well then, these, uh, they try to make some analogy to these locusts, and they came up with helicopters, right? Uh, that that there, there's helicopters flying around here, and helicopters are therefore, in some ways, demonic. And I think, okay, well, I, I can see you being scared of helicopters, but I don't think that's the point here, okay? Again, read the text. What is the text talking about? What is the picture saying? And the, the picture here is clearly of some demonic activity that is released by God at a specific point in time in history, and so there are things that we don't know from this picture. It's an impressionist painting, as it were. There's details that are left out. One of the key details to me that is left out is, is, uh, is the, the fact that, uh, can people see these? Does that make sense? Like, can the people of the earth actually see these locusts slash scorpions slash demons? Because normally, right, we can't see angelic beings, right? So can we see them? It's left out. Not, that detail is not there. Is the sting a disease, a biological agent of some kind, a mental illness? Again, we don't know how they're tormented precisely. We just know it compares it to the sting of a scorpion, which means it's sharp, it's painful, it, it, it takes over your body in a sense, but we don't know what, how that actually works. And again, we're also left a little clueless as to, is, is Apollyon a bad end? Is this person Satan himself? Is this a specific demon is separate from Satan? We, again, these things aren't totally clear in the text because as we'll see in Revelation 12, a dragon appears on the scene who is Satan himself. That, that dragon is, is seeking to deceive the nations and lead the nations astray to following him and this particular 
uh, individual is more interested in just destroying and tormenting people. And so, of course, Satan can do both. And, and so, but those things are things that we, that we don't know. But here's some things that are clear, okay? First of all, this, this is only on unbelievers, right? This is only on people who have not trusted in Christ. That's clear from the text. Also, it's clear that it's, it's designed ultimately to, to, uh, to, to make people suicidal. That is, they want to die, but they cannot you say, well, people are suicidal. They, they do kill themselves at times, but yes, that's true. But the point is, is, is it creates these desires in a wide swath of people because they're so tormented by something, by, by what's happening, by the torment that these demons are putting upon them. But I want you to notice the language of the description here. If, you, if we go back here to the description and there's a lot of likes, right? So he's comparing these things. Their heads, he says they're like horses prepared for battle. So locusts are supposedly like scorpions, but they're also like horses, okay? And so you're like, well, okay, how do you put all of that together? But the, the point is, notice his language. What language does John choose under the direction of the Holy Spirit to help you to understand the point of, the, of, of this impressionist painting that he's putting out there, Okay. It says their heads were like, looked like crowns of gold, okay? okay no, so they're appropriating that sense of ruling, right? It looks like they have crowns of gold on their head. Their faces were like human faces. The, again, that, that sense of they're appropriating something that's not what they are to look different than what they are. It says also that their hair is like women's hair, now, in the Bible, if, if, if Paul refers to women's hair as the, 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 the hair of women as their glory, right? As this, this, the, the glory of, of a woman is their, is their hair, in a sense. And he's just saying that they, they, they look beautiful, but also they, 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 they it's, it's, but it's more than that. It's that sense of who they are, okay? And, and, and what they, and so there's this appropriation of these things. Their teeth are like lion's teeth. Again, lion is, is the, the king of beasts, so to speak, right? That's there. And so you have this, you start to see a kind of consistent theme to the description of, 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 of these things that are, in a sense, appropriated by these demons. Um, it says, goes on to say that they have breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings are like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And so you get this, get, of course, the chariot in those days was something that was, again, it was awesome, it was terrible. It, and so you get this, this sense through this description that the theme, that kind of one of the themes that's here is that they're, they're stealing glory. They're stealing awe and power for themselves, that they want to appropriate or look, not that they aren't fearful and awesome, but they're not fully in control. They're not reigning. They're under God's direct release at this time. He, he, he limits who they can harm. He limits how long they can harm them. All of these things are controlled by God, but, but these demons are appropriating glory. They're stealing glory for themselves. And of course, stealing glory is a common biblical theme, right? It says, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the point is that we don't live for God's glory. We, we often just live for ourselves. We live for our own glory. And, and so one of the things that you get here is that they're, uh, 
they're, they're faking their glory, they're appropriating, they're stealing glory for themselves. And, and in so doing, uh, it tells you something about the situation. But let's, let's look further into the text and, and, and see more of it and then kind of bring it fully together here as to the emphasis of this impressionist painting as you were. And, and so you get to the sixth trumpet, which is these four angels and an army that leaves a third of mankind dead. Notice what it says here. It says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, or 200 million, right? I heard their number. John says, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." And so, again, we have this, and this kind of weird picture, so to speak, of, first of all, what you, see, what you see is the things, this picture of angels being released, but then immediately switches to this army, this 200 million uh, person horses army, that's, that's, that's clear. And so you get this kind of, again, Things we don't know. Uh, we don't know if this army can be seen. Is this, is this a combination of spiritual and physical? Is this a reference to a specific 200 million person army? Um, is this a 200 million demonic army? Again, it's, those things are unclear. Um, could this be a combination like, uh, of uh, like nuclear power? I mean, just uh, or demonic controlled armies. Um, it's not it's not clear. What is clear, again, is that one-third of humanity dies. And uh, that's, in, in context today, that's over two billion people. Can you imagine if two billion people died? So just let's put it in context here. The war in Ukraine. Russia invaded with 300,000 men. Remember, right? And, uh, and actually, Ukraine claims right now that that 300,000 Russians have died. So that first initial army of Russia is basically wiped out. Um, and I'm, I'm sure uh, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have died as well. Um, that's still only half a million, you know what I mean? Not two billion. It, it, like what we're talking about here is, is crazy numbers in a sense. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. But we also get a picture here of why that's true because it says that they were prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. So this is clearly a one-time event in human history. Does that make sense? When it says that it releases the, 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 the angels for, uh, from the river that were prepared for this specific event in history, now, this event could go, is going to last longer than an hour, but, but the point is, is that it's a one-time event in human history that this is going to happen. The other thing you get here is clearly that this is merciless. You get 
Um, what's interesting is the color. He talks about the color of the, of the army, right? It says that they're red and sapphire or hyacinth and whatever that color is, it's either a blue or a purple. It's hard to... Or, and, then, and then sulfur, which is usually typically yellow, yellowish gold. And you have these three colors. But then you see the... The, the plague that is released is, is fire, which is red, right? And, and, uh, and, and it just, the, the colors match the, the plagues. And I think the point by matching the colors and the plagues is to say that it's merciless. They're, they're glorying in their killing. They're glorying in their power to kill. And, and then it, especially then it talks about not only the plagues, but the tales that there's plenty of wounded people as well. And so you just get a picture of a merciless army at minimum of, of controlled by uh, uh, demonic forces that are uh, seeking to destroy a third of the world. And that just, those, putting those details together and kind of weaving that impression, like what, what is God trying to evoke in us by creating this painting, so to speak? What is he trying to remind us of? Well, I'm just going to ask three questions that maybe help us to think about this. The first one is, where is your hope? Where is your hope? What's ironic here, right, is the first four trumpets involved creation as a whole. They, they focused on creation. And, and basically telling mankind, look, you're trusting in creation to sustain you and take care of you, and you get to enjoy creation, it's, but, but it's going to be taken away from you because that, that creation is from God, and you can't get God's gifts without God himself. And I think at the same time, but shifting then to this focus on demonic locusts and potentially a demonic army, right, is, is this, this idea, again, that, again, sometimes we think, well, those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So, so I, if, 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 if Satan's against God and I'm trying to be against God, then, then we should be on the same side, right, so to speak? And of course, uh, Satan does try to deceive us into that, as we'll see later on in, in Revelation 12. But, but the point here with the judgment is that, no, these, these demons are not on humanity's side, they delight in torture. They delight in killing. They're, they're not on our side. They're not w- with us to help us, to, to make us great. They only simply want to make themselves great. And of course, traditionally, that's what demons are referred to, right? They're, they're, not, they're not on our side. They're seeking to destroy mankind. But uh, we deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, we can manipulate things to, to, to receive what we want out of history. And of course, Revelation 9 goes on to say then, therefore, there, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot hear a see or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. The first here, verse just emphasizes, hey, mankind goes through these plagues, they go through this horrific death and torment, and they still don't repent, they still don't turn back to God, they're still like, I want to live for myself, I want to live for what I can get out of my life, for me, for, for what I think is most important. It says they don't give up worshiping demons, even though the demons are tormenting them and killing them. 
They still worship God, idols of gold and silver. And of course, the, the connection here is that the, the idols represent the demons, right, in a sense. And again, by John throwing in, which cannot see or hear or walk, goes back to those prophetic uh, accusations in Isaiah and Jeremiah that why are you worshiping demon, you know, idols that, that can't see you, can't hear your pleas for help, can't move to, to help you. But, but we do as human beings. We, we worship things that really can't help us. We worship money, right? We think, oh, if I can just get as much money as I can, I'll be okay. I can take care of myself. You know what? Money doesn't hear you when you call. <laughs> it doesn't step in and help you. As we know, in today's world, it quickly flees away. You know, inflation makes everything <laughs> more challenging, not less. Some of us worship performance, like, hey, I, I'm going I'm to look good to other people. I'm going to have what I want by performing well, whether it's at my job or just in my relationships. I'm going to look good to people. And we worship looking good to people. We dress right and we act right and we do all of the right things for the crowd that we want to be a part of. And it's all a facade. It's, it's this, this demonic performance in a will to get you to do what they want you to do to ultimately destroy you. Some of us worship pleasure. We, we, want, we want what we want. We want to feel good and we want to feel good all the time. And again, we don't see like the eagle crying, look ahead, see what's coming down the road. And not just in here in this passage, but we know that people are tempted to suicide. They struggle with thoughts of what, what's worth living for and you know, nobody wants me and how valuable am I. And these are people who are made in the image of God, who God loves, who God cares for, but have rejected him. And when we're feeling pain and torment, we want to get rid of it. It's true. But we don't turn, unfortunately, to the source of hope, the source of joy, the source of love. As John put it in one of his earlier books, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, where is your hope? As you thought, think through your, your, this last week, what were you hoping in? Maybe you, you got bad news about you know, your finances, you know, like things start, at the end of the month aren't adding up. You know? Or maybe you got bad news about a family member or a relationship. Something in your life. Where, when you hear bad news, what do you turn to? Where do you go? Where is your hope? These people here heard the worst news anyone's going to ever hear in human history. <laughs> a third of human be beings die, and they still didn't turn to God. And again, it echoes what happens in Exodus, right, where Pharaoh over and over again hardens his heart in the face of clear, miraculous, direct intervention by God in human history. And he still hardens his heart and says, but I want what I want. And so humankind echoes Pharaoh's hardness of heart here. 
But the world is passing away along with its desires. And as Christians, we need to remember that not just for the future, but for now, in this day, in 2023, in which we live, that the world around us is trying to deceive us, to give us hopes that don't last, hopes that lie to us. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And that's why 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 says, But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's talking about Jesus and he's saying, look, I've been given a life. I've been given faith. I've been given an inheritance in heaven and I'm trusting in Jesus who can guard that for me. My hope is not in our ability to perform for Jesus even. It's the, our, it's, our hope is not in our ability to do everything right. Our hope is in the one who guards us, who protects us, Right? Peter puts it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the face of all of this judgment, we still have a salvation waiting for us who have trusted in Christ. It is guarded by the one on the throne. It is guarded by the Lamb. And we can hope in this. We can rest in it. This is our hope. Our hope is not in how much money we can accumulate over 60, 80, 100 years. Our hope is not in our health. Our hope is not in our relationships. Our hope is not in our job. Our hope is not in the pleasures we can get out of this life, even though we hope to have some of them. Our hope is in Jesus. He died again. He died and rose again for us. So where is your hope? In the face of bad financial news. Can you recognize, nope, Jesus, Jesus has got me. He can carry me. He can help me. In the face of bad relationship news, I need to turn to Jesus. I can trust him. He loves me. He loves me regardless of whether someone else loves me. He chose me. He adopted me into his family. This is who I am. This is the hope that we have, not in others loving us, but in the love of God shed abroad in our hearts through Jesus Christ. Second question you can ask is, where is your glory? Where is your glory? Again, these demons, especially these locust demons, are stealing glory for themselves. They want to appear so powerful. They want to appear so, um, so, you know, so glorious. We do the same thing sometimes, don't we? Steal glory for ourselves, the games we play. Whether it's in sports, right? We're, we're constantly trying to be the best, Who's the best? Iowa State won last night. Yay, okay. Most Iowa State fans are like, they're never going to be the best. You know what I mean? Although we keep hoping. Um, but these glories that we go after, these games that we play, these you know, false crowns that we, in a sense, try to put on our heads, there are true crowns waiting for us in heaven, prepared by God for us. Why steal other crowns? And I know the reason partially is they say, and I've run across a phrase that I think is helpful. It's like, Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. 
And, and the point is, is that we often live life not based on what we know about Jesus and what God has done for us. We live life based on how our parents lived and our grandparents lived. And so if our grandparents were about money and glory-seeking in various ways, we, when push comes to shove, we might know the right thing to do, but how grandpa acted tends to be how we act. And, and, and I would just encourage you if, if, to, think, to think about how your parents lived and your grandparents lived. And maybe they were Christians. Maybe they lived for God and they did, all, did things that were true and right and just and you're trying to follow their example. But maybe they were living for themselves. They were doing their own thing. And, and you need to replace their pattern of life with a more biblical pattern, right? Because we're seeking to glorify God. And maybe a way of doing that is just to, you know, journal, in a sense. To journal, okay, yeah, what were the things that I sought for? What glories were I, did I seek today or this week? What, what things did I look for? You know, it, I coach soccer. I'm part of the Gilbert Soccer Club. And uh, I took my daughter to um, AIM Soccer Club hosts this fast feet tournament at, uh, at an indoor uh, place this time of year. So I took my daughter there. And, you know, they're, they're all dressed up in the uniforms, you know. There's these 11 or 12 grade girls and their parents, not grades, year old girls and their parents, and they're seeking to make their kids better at soccer. And it's not bad. I mean, I'm, it's, but, but in some ways, everybody's just seeking glory, right? Like, look, 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 we're so great. We're so good. Where do you seek glory? Where is your glory? Galatians 6, 14 says, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This world is just seeking to deceive me or to destroy me. One of those two. But I have the cross where Jesus died for me. My God died for me to rescue me from my sin, my guilt, my death. Can we hope in that? Can we trust in that? The last question you can ask yourself is, where is your strength? Where is your strength? I think one of the terrifying things about these one-time event in history things, you know, so to speak, is we, we think, well, then I can't analyze it. I can't prepare for it. You know what I mean? Like, like with science, we're trained, most of us, to think scientifically. That is, to analyze things that are happening, to say, how, break it all apart, how is this happening, and then be able to manipulate it or use it for our own advantage, right? That's what science is, is basically about, right? And, and so we're trained to think scientifically. And then something like this comes along that's not about science. I can analyze it and then figure out what's going on with it because it's not a repeatable event, nor is it a skill thing like, oh, now that I know what's going to happen, I can prepare. I can get skillful for it, right? Neither of those are the case. And so there's this, again, this impressionist painting that's basically saying, look, this is going to happen. You have no control over it. You have no ability to prepare for it. You have no, no way to analyze how it's going to happen and, and figure it out. It's just going to happen. And so where is your strength to face things that just are going to happen that you are out of your control? Where is your strength? And I'm drawn right back to John 15, right? It says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. My strength is not in my ability to prepare, nor in my ability to develop skill, nor in my ability to develop wisdom. My strength ultimately is in Jesus Christ, that he died for me and rose again, that he was with me, that he can help me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 puts it this way, put on the whole armor of God, after saying, be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, we don't know exactly how this is going to happen. Is this a world war? Is this, is, but we do know that there's going to be a lot of death that God is going to allow to happen to draw people to himself. And people will come to Christ as a result of this. But most of people will just harden their hearts. And today, right now, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not about who's going to win the election, nor how can we turn the economy around, or how can I find my place in life exactly. We just follow Jesus day to day, Step by step, he's with you. I hope you find that reassuring. I realize some of us really like to know what the plan is. You know what I mean? Like, how's this going to go? What's this week like? What's next week like? Give me the details. I got to know the details. Some of us aren't. And, And usually you marry someone different than you. And you find it annoying at times. And yet, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against heavenly powers that we can't control, but what do we do? What do we have? We have our strength, which is in our Savior. And so we arm up with the gospel. We go back to the gospel and what it means for us that we have, been, we have had a Savior who died for us and rose again. Therefore, we are crucified with Christ. We don't longer live. We can live with and for Jesus because, and just walk with him day by day, day by day, day by day. As Jed pointed out, we, we encourage not only the high schoolers, we encourage, as a church, we encourage you to be in the word. Why? Not so you can just get smart but because day by day, Jesus walks with you, and he uses his word to talk to you, and he helps you day by day, and you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. There could be a, not a one-time event in history tomorrow, but there might be a one-time event in your life type of event, but you know what? Jesus is still going to be there with you for that, and he's going to walk with you, and he's going to help you, and he's going to guide you. Our hope, our glory, and our strength is Jesus. And it's walking with him and living for him and trusting him. And so what is your relationship with Jesus like? It's hopefully a a relationship with the God who loves you. And I'm reminded of Romans chapter 8, right? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Yes, 
These, these events that are coming to judge the world and remind them that they cannot trust in themselves, that they cannot trust in angelic beings, they cannot trust in creation. There's only one person who is worthy of trust, and that is God himself. And we must repent of trusting in anything else. But if you have done that, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will we not flee with him? Give us all things. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Who is also risen again. Who is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Day after day after day. Therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not tribulation, nor sword, nor famine, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our hope. This is why we exist as a church to tell more and more people that yes, judgment is coming, but there is hope in Jesus. There is love in the Father. And that no matter what happens in human history, there is hope beyond death, beyond pain, beyond torment. There's hope for eternity through Jesus. Heavenly Father, I confess that sometimes my hope is in myself. My glory is in what I can accomplish and my strength is in what I think I can do today. And yet you drive me back to Jesus. You remind me of his love. You remind me of his strength, of his purpose. Lord, help us to trust Jesus. Help us to walk with Jesus. Help us to speak of Jesus to those around us. Because he is our hope. He is our joy. And he is our life. We thank you in your son's name we pray. Amen.